blood and thunder and going in for tackles that you wouldn't normally go in for. I try and like want to go in like my voice English, the kids are having, but I just can't. For the best Euro 2020 coverage, subscribe now to the OTB Football Podcast and download the OTB Sports app. The OTB Podcast Network with Get Set Go. Quick start car insurance that's ready when you are. Sort your policy anytime online at getsetgo.ie. And you're welcome back to Off the Ball here on News Talk. John Duggan sitting in for Joe Malloy today until seven. Time now for the Sunday Papers. Uh, we're delighted to be joined by the Virgin Media commentator Dave McIntyre and the broadcaster and accredited sports psychologist Maura Trassa Nikali. Dave and Maura Trassa, how are you today? Great, John, how are you? Hi, MT. Hi, Dave. I hope you're well. Um, you can listen to us on News Talk and you can watch us on the digital and social channels, our live streams as well for Periscope on Twitter at Off The Ball, YouTube, Facebook and on the OTB Sports app. Search OTB Sports in your app store now to download the app if you haven't already. Looking forward to the chat, folks, between now and three o'clock on the Sunday papers, the review of the best writing uh, of your Sunday. Let's go through the back pages. Uh, front of the broadsheets, Jim Bulger part two. So this is standing his ground, Paul Kimmage and Jim Bulger, the Wexford uh, horse racing trainer. If it's not done, it's going to get worse. And if it gets worse, the game would be up. And the other headline on the back or the front page of the uh, broadsheet, Spurs set to block Kane's dream move. So Manchester City, Man United, I'm sure they'd be all interested in Harry Kane. But Daniel Levy has the fact that he has that contract, that six-year contract. And Harry Kane is going nowhere, according to the front of the uh, main section of the Sunday Independent Sport. we got the Sunday Times as well, with a picture of Ronaldo after Portugal's defeat. Uh, Heads you lose is the uh, front page headline there of the Sunday Times about Germany beating Portugal 4-2, uh, Ronaldo and Portugal on the ropes. Who can stop the dubs? A preview of the football championship, which is kind of crept up. It's going to happen from next weekend. Graeme Souness, Wayne Rooney, Peter Schmeichel, all writing in the Sunday Times. We're going to get to that in a moment. Going to go through the Observer here. Champions Mullard and uh, Thomas Muller in that uh, typical pose of his um, in the Observer. The front page of Germany to the fore is two own goals. Leave Ronaldo's holders third in their group with France up next. So really pretty much all about the Euros in the Observer. The back page of the Sun. Uh, writing us off was a big Joach. We knew we could have done better. and We knew we could do better. Portugal 2, Germany 4. Heart of Dragons about Wales playing Italy today at the Euros. And it's Derry well done after Derry's win in the NFL Division 3 final. One uh, 1-6 roughly, 21 points for Derry and Chrissy McCaig lifting the, the trophy at Croke Park yesterday. That's the back of the sun. Back of the Daily Mail, wunderbar. It's about Germany again. Thomas Muller, Germany roar back to form, send out warning to your arrivals, their win over the defending champions. Wither now England. Southgate has big calls to make as Euro title ambitions take serious dent. That is at the back of the mail. A new leaf, Derry Cruz passed awfully and laid down a marker for the summer. Plus Walsh, this is Miriam Walsh, ready for that Camogie final as Cats eye up final glory. Half seven against Galway tonight at Croke Park. That is the back of the mail. Back of the Sunday world, that man and Robin. So this is about Robin Gosens, uh, who was the man of the match yesterday for Germany against Portugal. Uh, it's gloom for Ronaldo, but pure joy for Gosens and Germany. And Pogba's Paul done at United. That's about Paul Pogba. Is this just happy at tabloid speculation and, and fodder for your summer, or is it actually a bit of truth, a ring of truth to it? Uh, we haven't had any Sancho headlines yet at the back pages. So I've yet to get to th- through the whole lot of them. Uh, we still have a golden chance as Harry Kane. Reality check, obviously, for England. He's had a poor start to the Euros. What is the reason for that? We'll tease that out now over the next hour and a half. An OT fear, Paul, will pog off. 
exclusive fears are growing that Man United in the back of the star that Paul Pog will run down his contract and walk out of Old Trafford for nothing next year and it's, it is coming home says Harry Kane to find Kane his back and says we can win the Euros um, he's told the nation this is England obviously this is back at the Sunday Mirror uh, that England can win the European Championship Pog free deal fear for United and Bale has Wembley way on his mind with uh, Wales playing Italy as I said at 5 o'clock uh, just on the back pages Dave Paul Pogba Harry Kane nothing really new there is there? No there isn't um there has been some talk that if there is a deal to be done for Harry Kane, that Daniel Levy is going to perform his usual negotiation hard man tactics as he has in the past and very successfully when it comes to the money that he's ultimately been able to bring into Tottenham when he's lost some of his bigger players. Bale obviously been the, the best example of that. And There are some clubs, I'd say, that would rather not have to negotiate with Daniel Levy well into the summer at all. So that's definitely going to be a factor as to whether or not Kane will be able to get that move, particularly with City, who I think would like to have their business done earlier in the summer than have to wait for the new season to start. And I think do City face Tottenham very early in the season? The first weekend. It's the first weekend, weekend, the first game. Yes, yeah, so they would. Uh, they would if they want. If Harry Kane's going to be a City player, they want him to be wearing the City shirt that day. And Daniel Levy certainly would not want that to be the case, particularly if Man City were to beat Tottenham the opening day of the season. I think Harry Kane's in a tough spot. There's a whole number of factors. His form isn't great. There are very few clubs, maybe two or three max, that have the financial wherewithal to be able to pay Tottenham what they're going to look for him. And uh, my guess right now, if I was to roll the dice, would be that he will be playing for Tottenham next season, whether he likes it or not. I wonder, Mauritasa, is it affecting him? I don't know. Um, I suppose it depends how good he is at parking things before he goes in between those white lines. But I'd say it's definitely going to affect him financially, just picking up on what Dave was saying there. Um, Or it's going to affect Tottenham financially at some point because his stock is going down with each bad performance, which is really unfair on him because he's been... I feel like because Harry Kane hasn't performed at these Euros and a lot of okay some of it is his fault but not all of it I know we'll be discussing some of the writing a bit later but um, I think as long the longer this gets more dragged out and protracted just kind of the shine goes off him a little bit you know it's like that dress you want for a long time and you know it's in the, you're waiting for it to arrive in the window and you're waiting and waiting and waiting and eventually shows up in the window and the shop assistant's like no I don't know and all of a sudden the dress is, becomes last season's do you know what I mean and I would be worried for him from that point of view alone his pocket I think if it goes on if it gets dragged on and like if as Dave predicts if he's playing in a Tottenham jersey instead of a City jersey uh, come the next few weeks and months it's not going to end well from financially and um, psychologically is it is it affecting his play who knows I don't know the man um, you would imagine though that something like that I do sometimes wonder if like when you're that rich and I don't think we can fathom the amount of money these footballers make like we know the numbers but I don't know if we actually understand it and how important is you know money and things for him it's more to do with his I suppose his own performance and what he wants to achieve with his career and so if he's going to sit and ruminate about that and maybe lost chances yeah it could affect him so it's interesting I just worry that he's going to start losing his stock it's early doors I think we all need to just as well take a bit of a breather when it comes to the Euros the key thing about the Euros is it's four last 16 from the last 16 onwards games to win and that's what the only thing that matters really the Pogba stuff uh, Dave like, you know, I could probably read that next week and I'll probably read it again <laughs> yeah. in July and I'll probably read it again next year <laughs> Yeah, and we read it last summer and we read it after the World Cup in 2018 and it's, um, look, it's old news at this stage. But the possibility of him not signing anything until his contract has run out is a very obvious one and it's certainly something Manchester United are going to have to consider over the course of this summer. 
They may even have to reconsider it in January if he has made it very clear that he won't be signing a new contract. Um, so there's probably some merit to the story in that regard, whether or not it's relevant at the moment and they've spoken to parties close to the situation. That's obviously, look, we don't know the situation there, but Pogba leaving for nothing is something that's going to become more and more relevant over the mon- weeks and months to come once they get the Euros out of the way. And particularly so given how well he's playing and it reignites all of these conversations that we had um, from his time at Juventus, from how well he played for France when they won the World Cup in Russia. How can he do it in the blue of France? And he doesn't do it anywhere near often enough or with the consistency that Manchester United would like when he's wearing a red jersey. I have read so much around it, listened to so much around it. I still don't really know. But, I mean, if you're playing in a team that have the jewels in it that the French team have both in front of him and behind him and compare that to the sort of guys he's playing with at Old Trafford, there's definitely something in that because he's playing with world-class players at international level. He probably has more time on the ball at international level. He's playing against some weaker sides at international level. And he just doesn't find it within himself to be able to produce that when he's playing for Ole Gunnar Solskjaer. There's some people that are blaming that on the manager. I know Eamon Sweeney is today yeah, in the Sunday. Yeah, have it here. Yeah. yeah, so um, I don't know what your thoughts are on it. but Would you Solskjaer not be afraid there, Dave, best, just... Just the way you're describing it there, the Paul Pogba, you know, saga that we've all been reading about for how many summers, Dave? And would you not be afraid maybe that this might happen to poor Harry Kane if he's still hanging around the next few years' time as well? Well, I don't think you can question Harry Kane's love for Tottenham. And True. I think Harry Kane is definitely the sort of an individual that if he does not get this move, he's not the kind of guy that's going to sulk. Um, he'll probably sign a lucrative longer term deal. He'll never have to worry about money. We know that much anyway, and that he will turn around and play, give Tottenham the sort of commitment after this summer that he has in the last decade. I don't think that would be an issue. There's no question of Harry Kane leaving for free at some stage over the next two years. I don't. I just do not see that happening. Whereas I think it's very real possibility with Paul Pogba. Yeah, it was at the back of the uh, Sunday Independent. Princely Pogba proves failure to fire United is all down to Ole. Uh, Paul Pogba's towering performance against Germany last Tuesday is more of an indictment of than a boost for Ole Gunnar Solskjaer, right, Eamon Sweeney at the back of the Sunday Independent. And he's also had a bit of a pop at Solskjaer a few weeks ago as well, that you know, he doesn't feel he's an elite manager for Manchester United. Um, they're really the kind of back page, like, not, not that much in the back pages, to be honest. So what is in the meat of the papers then, Maura Trasso? Let's start with the Euros. And, and England, obviously, we, we all obsess about them, even though people complain that we do, but I think they're probably the best place to start. Oh, geez, yeah. Euros, if Ireland can't be in it, you know, better if England wasn't there at all. But sure, if they're going to be there, we're going to try and find ways to pull them apart bit by bit. But um, I, I actually thought it was very interesting. Uh, the Sunday Times has got some really good coverage. And Wayne Rooney, I mean, what a revelation as a man to give analysis and commentary, I have to say. I've been really enjoying his columns. And um, really, like, he always brings a bit of insight. And um, I just thought... Like the booing and the fans of England is why I know we were discussing this two weeks ago, John, is what makes them so difficult to like, never mind love or support. Like you can try and be the bigger person and you can say, look, they play for my favorite Premier League team. Why wouldn't I support them on the international stage? Blah, blah, blah. Um, but then, you know, we see this kind of behavior and it just it just leaves a bad taste in your mouth and it makes it very difficult to try and forward bri- build bridges with the old enemy. So like Wayne Rooney actually starts off his column this week discussing that booing that we all heard on our TV screens on Friday night. And um, I just think it, it must be noticeable that that's what he decides to focus on at the beginning. You know, so he says, I was at Wembley with my two oldest lads to watch England draw with Scotland and at full time stood and clapped the players off. 
around us, there were fans booing the team. It reminded me of my time playing for England when we were jeered on more than one occasion. And I can tell you, it's never helped any individual play better nor helped the team. I think we as a country and England supporters have to get behind our players. Gareth Southgate and his players do not deserve to be booed on Friday. I know 100% that they're giving everything to help England to do well. Those players and young lads, I know firsthand how hard it is wearing that England shirt, walking off to booze. Be patient with them. And then he goes on explaining things that he would do and changes that he would make. And he... he throws himself into the gauntlet where he says but the, they're playing Tuesday against Czech Republic and he says, as I've been saying since the build-up to the tournament, Jack Grealish has to start. And I suppose that's the big talking point, isn't it? Three words in the article, Grealish commits defenders. I thought mm. summed up the article for me, apart from the booing which you, which you pointed out there. As I've been saying since the build-up to the tournament, Jack Grealish has to start. I would also play Dominic Clavert-Lewin up front with Harry Kane. So he's got a completely different view of the way Southgate should approach uh, the Euros because he feels that Foden, for example, has only played for Pep and plays in Pep's system and England are too slow in their build-up and they need a bit more spark and a bit more quick play. Um, yeah, exactly. And it's just really interesting the way he... And again, this is it, isn't it? This is the effect of the outsider looking in. And OK, he's not as much of an outsider as the likes of us standing by and speculating based off what we see off TV screens and written in papers. Wayne Rooney does know what he's talking about. But you do sometimes wonder then the contrast between somebody with his, we call it learned opinion and analysis, and then Gareth Southgate, who you would imagine knows those players inside out and exactly how they're going to perform is persisting with another brand that other people are saying is too slow and not delivering enough ball up to Harry Kane, for example, and not dynamic enough. So where is the where is the information fall off in between the two? Do you know what I mean? I find that really fascinating. So I'd love to know, like when somebody like Wayne Rooney is seeing this, Gareth Southgate is obviously seeing something very different. Like where where is that information vacuum? Do you know what I mean? It's fascinating. I think also the booing is reflective of a nation that's not exactly at peace with itself and not settled. Uh, we've been yeah. kind of thinking at the moment about the, all this um, fractiousness and this expectation. And it really is, today's news is tomorrow's chip paper. They go and they beat the Czech Republic. Um, it's all, the sunshine is out again. And, and that's my kind of feeling about it. I do think it is. It's the usual boom and bust, John, around yeah. major tournaments with England. I, mean, I have to admit, watching them in booed off against Scotland, I thought about that game in 2010. So it's very interesting that Wayne Rooney, he hasn't specifically mentioned that scoreless throw at Algeria in South Africa at the World Cup 11 years ago. But that was the game that I thought of because we remember he turned to the camera as he left the field and it was nice to see your own fans booing you. You football fans almost spat it into the camera as he was leaving the field. And obviously he was hammered for that. I think he had to come out in the aftermath and apologise for it. But we're seeing it again after a game in which they've got the point that will almost certainly qualify them for the last 16 which is all you can really ask for just to get out of the group and then you can reassess things and hit the reset button they haven't lost any players to injury they've got a couple of guys who should be presenting themselves as real options the likes of Jordan Henderson and Harry Maguire as the days go on and they get more training sessions under their belt um, so that was the part of the article that grabbed me first but yeah Morfrast is right his, his thoughts on Grealish are very committed in that he suggests that Phil Foden should be dropped. Uh, it's not a slight on Phil Foden as a player. He's a he's a fabulous footballer. And really, in any other of the top-level international sides in this tournament, he would be starting because of what he can bring. But Wayne Rooney is saying that he's so conditioned as a Guardiola-type Manchester City player that he, the way England play, such a slow build-up and without any real energy or pep and moving the ball quickly, that Foden ends up having to try and go past defenders and dribble the ball, which is not his best strength. And Jack Grealish, as Rooney says, is 
very capable of that. And the difference between Wayne Rooney's piece this afternoon and the piece immediately below his on that page in the Sunday Times, written by Graeme Souness. And nothing about Pogba in it. I'm amazed. Yeah, well, maybe Graeme Souness has had his say in Pogba. But it's interesting. There are slight echoes in Souness's piece of Wayne Rooney's. The sentiments are similar in that he believes England won't progress with two steady eddies, as Graeme Souness calls them, in Calvin Phillips and Declan Rice in their midfield. But interestingly, and rather annoyingly from my point of view, Souness doesn't say who should come in. Rooney's very specific. Foden needs to be left out, and you either bring in Grealish or Jaden Sancho. Whereas Souness says you need to get rid of one of Rice or Phillips, but he doesn't say who should come in. I read the piece twice, and I think I might have missed it the first time around. An expert on how a good and creative midfield should work, and he doesn't tell me how English should set that up. He doesn't tell me who should come into the side. Um, so that actually annoyed me. And I don't understand why that piece was allowed go through without somebody like Graeme Souness telling me exactly what he would do if he was the England manager. I mean, Henderson isn't fit enough, obviously. He hasn't seen any game time. They left James Ward-Prowse out of the squad altogether. So if you do take Rice or Phillips out, tell me, Graeme, who comes in? But he doesn't do that. And Jonathan Wilson's also annoying you, I believe, uh, today in the, in the papers, Dave. <sighs> yeah, it's, this, it's a sentiment I, I just cannot get on board with. This and uh, this feeling that this 2014 euros structure is wrong and it's not fit for purpose i just can't agree with it because i mean the headline and jonathan wilson i'm sure jonathan didn't write the headline himself and i love pretty much everything that jonathan wilson tends to write but the bloated format makes no sense for players or fans and i mean i couldn't disagree more as a fan i completely get this so-called bloated format um, Jonathan Wilson writes it takes 71% of the games to eliminate 33% of the teams and factually that's absolutely correct but major tournaments should not be the preserves of the top nations it should not be there for France and Germany and for Belgium and for Brazil and Argentina the, the teams that are always at the World Cup or in European terms the teams that always qualify for the Euros and so what if it takes a few more games think about the football fans of North Macedonia and Hungary, Slovakia, Finland Scotland have had in terms of the build-up since they qualified and over the last 10 days or so, which in a 16 or 20-team European Championship tournament these days just would not come along. I mean, World Cups for these sort of nations are essentially out of the question. This Those is their World Cup. Never for them. This is their World Cup. And the other thing about the amount of third-place teams that qualify, four of the six, there are very few dead rubbers going into the final round of group games. And for me, that makes it very interesting. Hungary's point that they ground out against France, it almost certainly will not be enough to get them through. But at least they go into their final game now knowing that a win should see them qualify for the last 16. Remember the case for us against Italy five years ago. We had that point that we took off Sweden and we knew if we beat Italy that we'd qualify. And we did. And it was an unbelievable occasion for us. Fair enough. It's easy for an English journalist to say, well, look, this takes too long to get to this point. But England qualify for, well, bar Euro 2008, of course. They qualify for all of these competitions. Whereas the lesser sides don't. And for that reason, I think UEFA's decision, albeit probably largely backed by monitoring. Holy. Um, <laughs> it still has the other consequence of bringing a North Macedonia to a major tournament or Albania, as was the case in Euro 2016, Northern Ireland getting to the last 16 and beating Ukraine. I was at that game. It was a phenomenal occasion. I don't care about the fact that the top nations have to maybe play an extra game or two. If anything, it helps them because their large, big, larger depth, bigger squads allows them to rest players in the last, um, the last round of games. But I completely disagree with Jonathan Wilson on this. 
also Lille creates social currency and lasting memories for people who would have been there um, that they can you know, bring to their conversations and tell their children um, and also we have a situation where the fascinating thing for me about the Euro so far is Italy everybody's raving about and they should be right 29 games unbeaten 10 games in a row they've won no goals conceded in 965 minutes but a new competition effectively starts at the last 16 and we might not necessarily see teams that have shown their full hand yet then produce things uh, later on the competition so to me I can't really decipher or tell you at this stage who the main protagonists are going to be for the final and that is the beauty of this Euro so far so I think it's been great entertainment yeah, I've loved it. I've I've watched all bar I think two games, and I've certainly watched the highlights of the games that I have missed, and I've really enjoyed it. I I I, I lament the fact that today is the beginning of round three of the group games because I get so used to having three or certainly two games of football on every day. Now we're actually going to only really get to watch half of the final rounds of games because they have to kick off simultaneously. So we're really only going to be watching another few games before we get into the knockout stages. And I, that's why I love the group stage in the World Cup. It's why I love the group stage in the European Championships because it is a feast of football where every game, bar maybe a situation where a side has two wins and plays a reserve team, in the last game because they're already through. But nearly every game has so much riding on it. Um, and you saw the amount of fans that had seen some of the stadiums. The, the, the setup in Budapest, for example, obviously there has been some issues around that. And they're very difficult to love the Hungarians given their sentiments in some ways. But it was an enormous occasion. And they really gave France a run for their money yesterday. And ordinarily, Hungary most likely wouldn't have qualified for a tournament of a European championship that had only 20 teams or 16 teams in it. Briefly, more Mauritius, about a minute left on this. I think life's coming yeah. back, though. I feel things are coming back. That is one of the, one of the th- key to- takeaways for me from the Euros as well, you know? Yeah, it's just it's, it's just really nice to participate in it, even if it is on our couches far away where we're on the sideline and not really lo- not involved in it, you know? But um, it's, just a, it's just a nice sign of that life and the normal that we used to know is coming back and we're all getting closer again to putting on that jersey and going off to a game um, to support your team, be that your your national team or whatever team you might support across the water. Or even now as well, League of Ireland, you know, we're, we're getting closer and closer to it and Gaelic games, everything. It's just maybe we appreciate it more. Maybe we didn't know the joy we had until it was taken away from us. We have Kilkenny and Galway in the Camogie tonight with fans at Croke Park. 53106 if you want to get in touch and ask questions to Dave McIntyre or Mara Trasini-Cali on the Sunday pay-per-view. Plenty more to talk about between two and three. We're back after this. Welcome back to Off the Ball here on News Talk. John Duggan sitting in for Joe Malloy until seven. You can listen to us on News Talk and watch us on the digital and social channels for Off the Ball for Periscope and Twitter, at Off the Ball, YouTube, Facebook, and on the OTB Sports app. Search OTB Sports in your app store to download it if you haven't already. We're continuing our review of the best stories of your Sunday with the Virgin Media commentator Dave McIntyre and the broadcaster and accredited sports psychologist Maura Trasini Kali. Text in here on five three one zero six. Howdy, folks. I love Off the Ball. What other sports radio show on either side of the water would compare Harry Kane to last year's Guna? (laughs) (laughs) There you go, Maura Trasa. Damien and Santry, one of many people uh, paying close attention to what you're saying. Um, Oh, dear. I apologise to all the fashionistas out there because people would say my football knowledge is very low, but my fashion knowledge is probably even lower. (laughs) Well, I wouldn't say that. Um, it was interesting the point Dave made before two o'clock about expectation setting and our expectation with the national team with soccer, which is the biggest show in town, has always come out of our past legacy, Italia 90, USA 94, Korea, Japan 02. 
Now, I think that the realistic expectation is that we should qualify for Euros and have a good time, but also play, more importantly, good football at a European Championship. The World Cup, in this current existence with 13 European teams, is a bonus. That will change when we get to the 48 teams in the States and Canada and Mexico in 2026. But Eamon Sweeney, at the back of the Sindo, Sun Independent, uh, Mortras, has been writing about this. Yeah, it's a really interesting piece and actually quite thought-provoking. I was reading it going, oh yeah, maybe, maybe he has a point there, yeah. And he's talking about how basically there's no reason too much, I suppose, too much down talk has been done of the Republic of Ireland team at the moment of people saying, oh, we can never expect to go there. And he's saying, for example, there's no reason Ireland can't emulate Slovakia and Finland or aspire to the heights reached by Wales, which is actually very true. There's no reason why any Irish footballer couldn't be looking at the Europeans right now and saying, geez, look at Wales, look what they've done, or even look at Scotland and see how their performance was so good against England on Friday night. It's been painted as England didn't play, whereas really Scotland didn't let them play. But I just thought it was he gives a little interesting vignette when he says, you know, Ireland don't possess the same quality of players that we did 10 years ago, but other countries are coping better with limited resources. Now, you could argue perhaps those other countries perhaps have had administrations that haven't been as upheavaled, we'll say, over the last few years as Ireland's has been. And he says, you know, it may not, it may be that Ireland will never again reach the heights of the Charlton era, but that still leaves us plenty to play for. One of the unfortunate byproducts of Saipan was the insane insistence that not only could we have won the 2002 World Cup, but that anything short of such a triumph could be considered a failure. And that is very true. Who remembers? And we still hear people saying that if it wasn't for the way Saipan happened out, happened and rolled out, and it wasn't for the way that, you know, we saw the matches that happened then afterwards, who knows? And I find that actually fascinating that actually nearly 20 years later, there are people who still maintain that position that had Saipan ended out differently, had perhaps Roy Keane did put the boots on and did think of the children and did play, um, we might have been World Cup winners. Yeah, it was interesting because uh, it was actually a link to that in the Sunday Times because Stephen Reid is profiled in the paper there, the Sunday Times, because he's now a coach and he's assistant with Scotland under Steve Clark. Mm. Um he ended up making two appearances as a sub in Japan and also watching Roy Keane self-combust, an experience he brought to Scotland's pre-Euros preparations by using a, as a warning for leaving players with too much time in their hands in the build-up to major tournaments. A nice profile on Stephen Reid, who, with Lee Carsley, Dave, is making waves in coaching in England and Scotland. Yes, yeah, it's, it's great to see Stephen Reid enjoying the role he has with Steve Clark, who he grew to know very closely what during their time at West Bromwich Albion at West Bromwich Albion enjoying it as much as he has done and he seems to be playing a really integral role in the in the Scottish coaching setup and the way that they are approaching these games and more trust is right they played some really nice stuff albeit with less possession than England obviously in that game and they have some players who are coming through that Ireland would kill to have in their starting 11 and not just the obvious ones like Robertson and Tierney who are just brilliant footballers at fullback but the manner in which Billy Gilmore has been able to put his stamp on the European Championships, having played so little football for Chelsea over the last few months. And I think he's just 20 years of age and what a prospect he is. And like Wales as well, uh, Kiefer Moore, the, what they're getting out of him up front, a player that was a bit of a, uh, an unknown quantity three or four years ago, I think he was playing non-league football. And look at the sort of the manner in which he could spearhead their attack. And it should inspire us and it should keep letting us know that we have players in our squad at the moment that, given a little bit of self-belief and a bit of confidence and a bit of patience that they could go on and achieve some things in the green of Ireland under Stephen Kenny and his backroom team. And I think in the last couple of games, albeit, yes, Andorra, and we were trailing in that game, and it could have been just one of those 
and yet yet another nightmarish night for this management team and the manner in which we played against Hungary in a full stadium Hungary side that were looking to take a bit of momentum into the Euros there was the first seeds on green shoots of progress in my opinion and Eamon Sweeney is right he not only does he think that they should be allowed to see out the remainder of the World Cup qualifying campaign but they should actually be given the chance to qualify for the Euros as well and it goes back to the piece that we discussed before the news break with Jonathan Wilson in the Sunday Independent that that is where we need to be targeting any future successes not the World Cup the World Cup qualifying campaign in the remaining games that are in it should be used to get ready for Euro 2024 and it's after that we can judge whether or not Stephen Kenny's reign has been a disaster or it has been a success or somewhere in between. Probably be somewhere in between, to be honest, at this stage. Um, the Gaelic game is rising because the championship is upon us. Uh, more Trassa, where do you want to start with what we have in the papers? I think I'd have to start with the mail on Sunday. I, and I would actually tell people who, if they haven't gone out for their Sunday papers yet, you might be thinking it's a bit late in the day. There's no point in getting them now. But if you're a Gaelic Games fan and if you're in the mood for good analysis and stuff, go get yourself the mail on Sunday. There's some really good articles in there. Um, but I, I think one that's perhaps that's going to pick up steam over the next few days and weeks is once our heads and thoughts and minds perhaps turn from the Euros and from the league, and obviously we know the league hasn't been perfect and it gave us great games, but obviously we know there haven't been league finals aside from yesterday's, obviously. But we're going to start talking about the knockout and the knockout nature of championship and the knockout allegedly appeal, which Shane McGrath has a great article here in the mail today talking about how it does little for the likes of Clare's David Tuberty. And we can all talk about the romance of the knockout. And if it wasn't for the knockout, we wouldn't have had Cav, the story of Cavan and the story of Tipperary. And they are great stories and they're going to go down to the annals of history. But are they really doing teams and players in particular? Are they doing them justice? Like when you think of the amount of years and never mind even the last year in particular that David uh, Tuberty has put into playing for Clare and the hours of training and the injury prevention and the injuries and the rehab and the physio and the time lost from work and personal life. And then as Shane McGrath puts it very succinctly and very black and white, right in his first line, in six days' time, the Clare footballers will be done for the year. They play Kerry in the Munster Championship next Saturday night. The game will be played in Fitzgerald Stadium, regularly cited as the most picturesque GA venue on the island for their rivals in Munster, it must hold all the attraction of an abattoir. And that's the long and short of it is, unless Clare pull off a miracle, which, and, and that's not to disrespect Clare in any way, shape or form. They're a wonderful team of footballers who, when we were talking earlier about um, Eamon Sweeney's piece about how the Irish team should be looking and seeing what you can do with the talent you have instead of bemoaning what you don't have. Clare has great talent and Colm Collins has found a way to get the absolute best out of those players on and off the field. But barring major incident uh david tuberty's and the rest of that clear's team's championship dreams are over next saturday night and i know we're in a pandemic and i know the gaa were you know when you think about it it's miraculous any games are being played especially last year was there any way at all that we could have found a qualifier or a backdoor route i would i would have loved to have seen it i suppose my opinion doesn't count for much but i just think it's very cruel that there are teams all over the country who you know next weekend aren't going to be playing anymore also makes it more likely, Dave, that Dublin win the All-Ireland again. Yeah, it does. There are fewer days for them to be got at, as would have been the case maybe in a backdoor in a Super 8s, for example. And yeah, it's so hard to see beyond a dublin Kerry final. And then it's just a question of whether Kerry can go close to what they did in 2019 and maybe get over the line. And I think I do find that unsettling to an extent that the championship hasn't even begun and we're already talking about there really only being two teams that can possibly compete against each other, and that, in all certainty, the final pairing is almost set in stone. And but look, let's not 
you'll have to give some credit to the GAA. I would find it very unlikely that there's anybody in the higher echelons of the GAA in Croke Park that believe a knockout format is the best format. Oh, agreed. Um, and, agreed, yeah. So, yeah, there's nobody that thinks that this is the way it should be. It's a scheduling. And last year, it is a scheduling issue. And last year, it was all down to nostalgia. And I had that warm... You got the Cavan thing. Coat of, we had the Cavan thing. And we had that warm, fuzzy coat of nostalgia where you remember going up, well, from from my personal circumstances, being dragged all over Ulster, the, the nine counties in my childhood, and everything was on the line. And these really hot, sticky, suffocating afternoons where you're watching Cavan play Donegal or Tyrone or Armagh and you knew that it was up to this 70 minutes and then after that one of these teams was done for the rest of the year. And it was it was an almost an exhausting experience, but it was an exhilarating one as well. But it was it was not the right way for things to be. And that's why the qualifying and the backdoor system came into place. And I don't think they had any option last year. Their hands were tied. The question around this debate this time around is was there an alternative was there a way the schedule could have been rejigged could they possibly have started things a couple of weeks earlier could they have got rid of the league format completely and just got a championship in place so that after a few weeks training and maybe some challenge matches so they could have enough dates in the calendar to play qualifiers my personal opinion is that 2021 will be seen as a lost year when it came to experimenting with a radical championship structure scrap the provincial championships for one year only on a trial basis cite COVID-19 and the pandemic as the major reasoning behind it put it in stone in on paper that this was a 12-month deal only and that in 2022 well even after a review of everything we would go back to the provincial championship and backdoor system if necessary but you play the eight groups of four where the top two end up in a last 16 and an A championship, and the bottom two play in the last 16 of a B championship. You play both finals over the course of a couple of weekends at Crow Park, hopefully with fans. Everybody, at the bare minimum, gets four championship games, and then next year we could revert to type if necessary. There would have been the time to do that. There would not be a situation where David Tuberty and Claire are heading to Clarney next Saturday night, and, and I'm on commentary for that for Sky, and I can't wait to be there, and it's going to be a good occasion. But barring a shock of absolutely cataclysmic proportions, Clare are going to be done. And David Tuberty was one of those players likely to walk away after last year's championship. He didn't follow in the footsteps of Gordon Kelly and Gary Brennan and leave. He decided to give it another go. He, I'm sure he's glad he did so because he's written himself into the annals of the record books in league history. But David Tuberty's not going to get to play championship again for Clare almost certainly after next weekend. And look at Sligo, for example. And it's something that Mark O'Shea has cited in his piece mm. in the Mail on Sunday today. Sligo didn't get to kick a ball in last year's championship because of COVID-19 cases in their camp. Tony McEntee is going to bring them to play Mayo next weekend and they're going to be beaten and they'll have played one championship match in two years. And that is an awful situation for them to be in. Unless the Killian O'Connor injury uh, skews mm. the potential for that to not happen, for them to win. Um, I think I think the lesson of this is they got to get it right next year. they got to get it right next year. Structurally. But, but we know what's happening next year, John. We are going to go down the... The, the line where there's going to be no qualifiers or backdoor for the Division 3 and Division 4 sides. Um, so there are going to be some sides in the Championship in 21 and 22 that will play one game. And then they will go into this second tier competition. And there are very few people that think that's the way to go as well. I just think that this was the year, this was the opportunity where you could rip it up for 12 months and then take a step back and assess how everything had gone. And I think that chance has been, got, has been lost and... While I do think someday, somewhere down the line, we will end up in this Champions League type format, this was a year where you could make an excuse for it 
and managed to get it in there and just see how things panned out. I think they need to rip it up straight away. I think they need to just completely... That's not going to happen, though. Yeah, we, I wish they would, though. We know, no. we know what it's Because well, they, they ripped it up to get the, the club and the inter-county season separate. So why can't they do it for the championship? Well, like, to be fair to them, and I always cite this whenever I feel, whenever we are giving out, because that's technically what we are doing, um, they have, they're in charge of every club in the island of Ireland and the county scene, and the two don't really, they don't operate well together, you know what I mean? One gets in the way of the other, and then they've got football and hurling to be dealing with as well. So there's a lot of, and then it's nearly too democratic. If you wanted to rip something up and start again, it would be very difficult because there's a democracy at play in this as well. So I understand why it's slow to change, but I do agree with Dave that this was the year that if you wanted to rip up the rule book and go for it, you were able to do it. Because like you said, John, last year we managed to do it with the club and county. And this actually segues very well then into Mark O'Shea's article, because he's saying that the GAA are playing the price for the slow return. You know, And hindsight's a great thing, obviously. You know, But with all the injuries we're seeing now, had the county teams be allowed back to train a bit earlier, we might have had fewer injuries. And... You know, it's easy to say now, but, you know, now they're playing catch up and we're seeing it's taking its toll on the bodies. And the, and just between that and the fact that the league then was kind of devalued, like if you start a competition, you probably should finish it, especially because we had some great games as well. It was a good league. It was great fun to participate in. It was great to watch. And I just sometimes wonder, and I, I get why the GA find this so difficult, but have they not maybe cut their own legs out from under themselves. They had two, they had the opportunity for two wonderful showcases this summer between the league and trying something new and it didn't happen. Now, I'm sure there's very good reasons why it didn't, but it's an awful shame that one, the league wasn't finished and we didn't try something different for championship this year. It was all, the stage was set. Everybody would have just been delighted to be at the show. Yeah, I just wish there was a five to 10 year uh, plan for this, that in 10 years time, we're going to have provinces either not happening at all or in the spring and you have your provincial championship and you have your lovely winner, but then you actually have a league championship in the summer. That means something. Uh, like I'm reading Mark O'Shea saying that sometimes the league mattered, sometimes it, it didn't. Um, I'm, I'm tired of the league. I'm just tired of it. I'm tired. It's great for Division 3 and 4 teams, um, but have that in the summer and have meaning to it and have um, different tiers of finals and have super weekends and, and have teams travelling around the country and the, this kind of hodgepodge of, of a structure to me. Uh, I, I just I can't understand why we couldn't have had no hurling league and actually had the round robin and Leinster Munster. It would have been much more entertaining, would have been much more meaningful than what we're going to have now in a few weeks' time. Yeah, it is. You look at it and it's this old debate where you look at the championship structure as things stand at the moment. Kerry are going to beat a Division 2 team in Clare to get to a Munster final, so to within 70 minutes of an All-Ireland semi-final, where a team in a similar position up in Ulster is could be drawn on the preliminary round and are going to have to fight their way out of the Ulster Championship to get to the same place as Kerry and play lesser opposition Kerry will be than the sides up in Ulster where there are more Division 1 sides and you've got teams like Derry and Armagh that are very much on the rise of Monaghan holding on to their Division 1 status and then you have the perennial favourites in Tyrone and Donegal Tipperary the reigning Munster champions are now a Division 4 team now I know it's the same in Ulster with Cavan but there are so many other sides that have a realistic chance of taking on anybody in Ulster and we don't have that in the situation that currently resides in Munster and it is outdated 
I think there's a place for the provincial championships. But as you say, John, play them a bit earlier in the year. Come up, if absolutely necessary, with some way to link it to the championship, a league-style championship format. But we've seen how important the league has been to teams this year. Look at Offaly, for example. Back-to-back promotions. They're really making strides under John Mahon. They got to play in Crow Park yesterday. Derry with back-to-back promotions under Rory Gallagher, playing a brand of football that I don't think anybody would have previously associated with Rory Gallagher coach teams. There is so much to be excited about going into the championship until you come back to the realisation with a resounding bump that Dublin are going to play Kerry in an All-Ireland final in a few weeks' time. Uh, Kevin's been in touch on 53106. Surely the problem is that the league is discounted in GA season over after one game where they're not league games. No other team sport places all its focus on a cup competition. That's his text there on 53106. Um, any other GA writing that we like, Mortrasa? Um, definitely, I think the Mark O'Shea article is well worth a good read, just explaining the impact of injuries. There's also a great two-pager called A Special Report by Philip Lanigan for the hurling snobs, of which we all are, I suppose. And it's all based around um, research that is done by uh, Paul O'Brien. He's done a Master's in Sports Performance Analysis, and he has analysed, I suppose, the evolution of hurling. And there's two pages there. There's there's heat maps of the shots of the top teams. There's opposition, uh, opposition pokeouts one, own pokeouts one. There's graphs, there's diagrams. But the interesting fact of all this, what you see before your eyes, yet your eyes, you have to believe it, there is no metric at all where Limerick are not in the top five. And if the GA, they're talking about the GAA's new committee about hurling, and if they want to examine how the game is changing, they could be well served delving into this detailed forensic study. And there's so many tidbits in it that I don't even know where to start with it. But I just thought it was very interesting that the reason and he started off and the whole thing was he wanted more to go on than the loose than a loose opinion of the game and no surprise Limerick jump off the page so people are saying Limerick do this they're successful or Tipperary do this and they're successful and Dublin aren't good because of this or Wexford fall down because of this that kind of stuff and they, what he was trying to do was get an overall picture what hurling is about so you get the stats you learn that it is all still very much a turnover based game because of the skill involved where the scores are coming from a third or less scores are coming from your own puck out so you can see then how Limerick was hoovering it up you know and then as it's you can see so you'd imagine the opposition of the upper hand because they have the ball but it's turned over as their defensive shape isn't as good and it easier to score and stuff like that is important because if you look at the last three years Limerick, Galway and Tip have been the most successful teams but less of their scores are coming from that structured puck out so even stuff like that it's just fascinating that you actually have data and I thought it was interesting where he says without a question Limerick are the best Kylie's rant a few weeks ago about the freeze and the simulation in my opinion he was so annoyed at that because Limerick fouled the most he has the data there you know the heat maps and they foul in the most non-threatening, in the most in non-threatening areas. I've heat maps in the foul areas of different teams. There's talks about these cynical fouls where there's a lot of goal opportunity going on. A lot of the teams that D area, there's a considerable amount of fouls. And interestingly, uh, O'Brien doesn't buy some of the alarmist noises during the current league campaign about the hurling going the way of a non-contact sport. So he says. On the contact element of it, there's congested amount of bodies in that middle area. If you're going to try and walk ball through that, there's going to be con- there's going to be contact. So he says it bugs me to an extent. Football is considered to be this game where there's loads of tackling going on. But when Dublin played was common in the first round of the league and even Dublin Kerry, the players are carrying the ball beyond the 45 before there's a tackle made. So just really interesting. You, you could read it over with tea. And even I read it this morning. I read it before we came on air. And I'm reading it now again. I'm picking out different bits. Even the tallies of TJ Reid. It, it's fascinating. You'd want a highlighter and your own and your own kind of little wall chart. To there's the highlighter. There's the highlighter uh, for anybody <laughs> watching. Um well, there's, sorry, more, Professor, there's two aspects to what you said there, and one, it, 
the, you're talking about the fouls that the Limerick players commit in non-threatening areas. The problem is there are almost no non-threatening areas, areas left on a, on a hurling mm. field nowadays. I mean, if you foul someone on your own, on their own 21, I mean, if there's a little bit of a breeze, there's a good chance their goalkeeper, if it's own, re, own uh, sorry, his name escapes from the Kilkenny goalkeeper. Um, Owen Murphy. Owen Murphy. Murphy. Owen Murphy can stick the ball over almost on the edge of the square. So there's very few non-threatening areas left on a hurling pitch nowadays. And the second part of it is, and it's a brilliant piece from Philip Lanigan, and he's, he's, it's called the Special Report, and he's obviously put an awful lot of effort into it. And I recommend anybody with a real interest in the small ball and that game have a read of it. But the, the stats and the data are one thing, but the eye test is another. And we all have our own opinions on what we're actually seeing whatever about the statistics and when it's laid out for you on a piece of paper or on a laptop screen if you're watching a game in which one player called Tony Kelly or TJ Reid can walk away with 120 or 18 points and the full-time score is something like 132 to 226 it's very hard for you to leave the stadium that day and really feel that you've seen a really good physical hard-hitting contest because there are so many breaks in the game and a tally of 120 on paper looks great but if you break it down and you find that there may be only three of those scores were from play i have no interest in watching a free-taking contest and i would argue that you probably while well, we saw that in the league because literally this year in hurling the yarad the league is the league really was the name of the game and i i just feel that we won't see this in championship coupled with the crowds coming back as well Maybe that's optimism, yeah. Dave. That, so no, you, you, that's an absolutely, it's a really valid point, and that's why maybe this debate needs to be had in the autumn, once we do actually get to yeah. see whether or not we get a similar type of pattern emerging over the next two months. You won't see a 30 points to 19 then win for Limerick in the All-Ireland Final, more trust is what you're saying? I, I would hope not. <laughs> of course, people are going to say this back to me now after the all the, the article was brilliant, and it really gave me an insight into why Limerick is so dominant, but it did not give me the answer to why the scores have increased exponentially in recent years in the hurling championship. Um, I would argue that the answer that I extrapolated from this, and I could be completely wrong, but the conclusion I came to this is the reason Limerick are completely dominant is they figured out how to game the system, which was by being strong, committing fouls, and I mean that in the best possible way, strategic fouls in a way to help their game plan. They're strong men. They've grown up under a system that has gotten the best out of themselves as well. And this shows how they managed to game it in a way that worked towards their strengths. And that's why they're dominant and other teams are catching up with them, I feel. I suppose the debate really, though, at the moment, isn't it? Is, is hurling as enjoyable as it was to watch? I think it will be. Once championship rolls into town. Dave? I reserve judgment on that at the moment. <laughs> You're pleading um, the fifth. <laughs> Yeah, like I, I think I am. I'm, I'm looking forward to a really good championship. I enjoyed last year's championship immensely, and I didn't think I would going to stadiums as a commentator that no supporters in them. But um, that the Kilkenny Waterford game, for example, was a classic for me and one I really enjoyed. Less of a classic was the game between Galway and Limerick, but it was equally it was as absorbing. Again, despite the fact that there were there were no fans at Croke Park, and I think there will be many of those this year. I do lament the absence of the round robin in Munster and Leinster which I enjoyed hugely for the couple of seasons that we had it and, and they will come back hopefully in 2022 but as we said as detailed a piece as it is from Philip Lanigan in the Mail on Sunday it doesn't address the complaints and the the you know the issues that we've been talking about over the last few weeks now hopefully championship will take care of a lot of it maybe some referees will try and allow the game to flow a little bit more 
But uh, James Scahill, the former Galway goalkeeper, was on off the ball a couple of times in the last fortnight, and he had some really interesting insights into the reasons why we're seeing so many high-scoring games. And a lot of it is down to the fact that the ball is too light and the hurley is too big. And then you combine that with the immense str- strides taken in strength and conditioning. yeah. Mm. And that these guys are just able to do things with a hurley and a slither that players in previous generations could never possibly have dreamt of doing. And it's a similar debate to the one that we have in golf all of the time. You can't just keep making the golf courses longer because these guys can hit the ball further. There has to be a different way to approach this thing. And eventually they're probably going to have to do something about the size of the boss on these hurleys and how lightweight that is. Or the grooves on the slitter. And the grooves on the slitter as well. The edges on it, which is something that James Scahill was saying, that it is uh, it is conducive to hitting the ball further. And these guys are as ripped and as well-maintained athletically as they are. Someone like Owen Murphy is going to be able to put the ball over from his own 21. Um, 53106. Offaly will have played for Mana, Derry, Loud, and possibly Kildare in the time period where Leitrim will have played no game. Their last game was May 30th. Their next is July the 11th, says Liam in Longford. Never forget us, Clare, because of McClare connections. Clare 113, Offaly 28 was the score in the 1995 All Ireland Hurling final. Um, I don't think the experience was any way inferior. Um, or the Kilkenny Court game in 1999 was 13 points to 12. Incredible game. Um, Maybe they not. were incredible games, Sean, but I think the game of hurling te- in the last 10 years is it is far better to watch than the games in those days. I and mean, when Wexford won their All-Ireland in 96, what they, 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 it was a very low scoring final against Limerick. And yeah, that's absorbing and thralling. There's so much to say. Wexford had to wait so long for their All-Ireland. Limerick hadn't won an All-Ireland since 73. Even back in 96, they were already in the midst of a drought and they didn't get to end that until this decade. But... If you think of the games involving Kilkenny and Tip, those trilogy of games, the manner in which Joe Canning fired that ball over from the Cusick stand side to beat Tipperary when in the year that Galway won their All-Ireland, you didn't really see scores like that in the 90s no. and in the 80s and the 70s. But the problem is the scores from play are being dwarfed now by the scores from freeze. And a player is getting cuter. The forwards are getting cuter. They know exactly how to milk the freeze. Even the half-backs coming out with the ball know how to get win a free. And the whistle is just being blown way too often. And instead of a ball being slid down the channels and into a wing forward, who might turn and try and sling it over his shoulder and over the bar, there's a very good chance that that ball instead is going to go straight over the bar from the, the a centre half-back that can stick the ball okay. over from way out the field. Um, just want to bring people's attention to an article I think everybody should read. John Green has written in the Sunday Independent about a difficult situation at a club in County Mead St Mary's. In September of 2015, there was a plan to dismantle a roof of a building at the club. One of the volunteers, Seamus Brady, fell through the roof. He landed on the concrete floor, sustaining serious injuries. It's gone to a legal case. He's not been able to work since the accident. I think it's definitely worth people having a look at. What I would say, the takeaway that I had from the article is that it's important for all volunteers to be made crystal clear about what's covered when it comes to insurance at J clubs because it's a very sad case. It's had ramifications for the individual, for the community. And I definitely think it's worth uh, everybody taking a look at that that article from John Green today. And Camogie-wise as well, we've got a league final tonight, Maura Trassa, and there's also talk about the way Camogie has dealt with its own issues around how the game is played. Yeah, for sure. Um, speaking about the men evolving in their strength and their skills and performance analysis and everything, um, by God, the women's sport has been pulling up its socks as well. Mark Gallagher has a really interesting piece with uh, Miriam Walsh, cousin, of course, of the great Tommy Walsh and cousin of Grace Walsh, who she'll be playing with tonight, and uh, talking about how she 
picked up her strength as a hurler uh, playing with the Tullerone boys back in the day because they didn't have a camogie team and she attests her camogie skills and her strengths to being able to play with the lads which I thought was really interesting because obviously we know boys and girls really at that age physiologically were very very similar and it's only as we get a bit older that the differences come through and Vera Powell he cites as well that she says you know girls should be playing with boys and there's an article as well in the Times Dennis Walsh has it in page 17 also about Camogie and he's talking about the final the league final this evening as well but the changing vision of how Camogie actually took on board to be fair to them feedback over the last few years the women were getting stronger the game was still being refereed in a way where I suppose ladies played it back in the day where women weren't as strong, women didn't have the physicality, tackles were being blown up as fouls when they weren't really. So they reviewed things, they um, they decided, they um, they took a survey, they spoke to people, they created a committee and actually um, Dennis, uh, he um, cites Cots Devan here saying the old rules didn't allow us to display the wealth of talents that we have. So what changed, and this is the interesting point for people who mightn't be fully aware of the change of those rules, a side tackle with minimal force, which of course makes always makes it open to interpretation for a referee, is now permitted. Dropping the hurley is outlawed as our hand pass goals more than 30 years after hurling made the leap. Penalties must now be struck from outside the 20 metre line, but three players are no longer permitted on the goal line, just the goalkeeper. So that shows the involvement of Camogie. And it's interesting as well, you know, he pulls a comparison saying, you know, that the he did the rule differences between hurling and Camogie and a total came up to 41 in the differences. And bit by bit, these things are changing. And he makes the interesting point as well. All over the country, former hurlers are being asked to coach Camogie teams. And it, was, it wasn't actually until 1999, I didn't realise this, they went to 15 a side pitch and moved to a full-size GA pitch. And all of a sudden, they became open to the importance of bringing in I suppose, listening to the science and seeing what's happening. And I think the first time we saw kind of a real impact on this, it was a game down the Gaelic grounds in All-Ireland semi-final two years ago between, I think, uh, Galway and Cork. And it was amazing hurling to watch because it wasn't being blown up. Just the things that Dave is complaining about there. It became a free-taking contest and that's boring to watch. Camogie, for the last few years, that was an accusation that could fairly be thrown at them. We can't throw it at them anymore. We should have a really good league final tonight, I hope. Absolutely, half seven throw in at Croke Park for Kilkenny and Galway. Five three one zero six make the focus on the league. Three divisions play each team twice. Games over the summer. Knockout championship to run alongside it. Open draw for the whole country. Do away with the provincial says Connor in Dublin. It would help both hurling and football if the foul players had to take the free themselves. Not a bad idea. And hi guys, what about ground hurling and pulling off the air? Gone forever. Remember John Fenton and Jimmy Barry Murphy says Tom in Cork and the. Bit of an insulting text here on 53106. Jesus Duggan, the Euros are on. You're talking non-stop bog ball and stick wars. I prefer to listen to opinions about Ronaldo, not my local plumber playing for Wicklow's as Colin. Well, Colin, the early bird catches the worm. <laughs> half one, we started the pay-per-view. We spoke for half an hour about the Euros, but you can listen back on the podcast. But the pay-per-view does continue with more Trashy Nicali and Dave McIntyre after this. You are welcome back to the Sunday paper review here on Off the Ball. John Duggan sitting in for Joe Malloy until seven. You can watch us on the digital and social channels for Off the Ball as well as listening on News Talk. So check out Periscope for Twitter at Off the Ball, YouTube, Facebook, and on the OTB Sports app. We're continuing our chat, going through the best of the stories in the Sunday papers with the Virgin Media commentator Dave McIntyre and the broadcaster and accredited sports psychologist Maura Trasa Nikali. 53106 if you want to get involved in the conversation. Part two of Jim Bulger and Paul Kimmage is in the Sunday Independent. What was the assessment, Dave? Um, I think I, I've definitely found it interesting and last weekend's first part was very interesting and, and there was more maybe 
juicy aspects to the first portion of it. But today it's really more of a chat. Um, I wouldn't know the ins and outs of the racing game as much as you would, JD, and the significance of Jim Bulger as a as a figure in Irish racing, because I'm sure no matter how I tried to describe it, I would underplay it. But I did pick out a couple of pieces in it. I mean, the first portion of today's section is essentially a piece debunking some of the myths around Jim as, a, as an almost tyrannical figure around his yard. And there's a couple of pieces in where it's something is put to him that allegedly took place in the past and he has maybe told the right side of the story. But there's a quote from A.P. McCoy after falling off the gallops on one of Boulder's horses and breaking his leg. And if you were to read the piece in isolation in A.P. McCoy's book, Jim Bulger stood over him as in as McCoy was laying prone on the ground with uh, a broken bone and told him that you're soft which makes Jim Bulger sound like an incredibly difficult person to be around. Only that wasn't really how it went down. He actually said it to him after t- Tony McCoy had gone out of hospital and had put on a little bit of weight. So he was a bit pudgier than he might have been maybe before he initially went in for his treatment. Um, but McCoy has said that if, if any young fella asked where he should go if he's to cut his teeth in the racing game, that he should go to Jim Bulger's yard. And if he had his time again, Tony McCoy would do exactly what he did and spend the time with with Jim Bulger that he did. But the one part I kind of wanted to run by you, John, was there's a really interesting back and forth between Kimmage and Bulger about Aidan O'Brien. And people in the racing game will know the amount of time that Aidan O'Brien spent working under and with Jim Bulger and how much he would have learned in Jim's yard. And, there's a couple of references to Aidan O'Brien, but one is that I thought there was a real dig at O'Brien um, where Bulger said he needs he he I, he would like to see him learn enough to be able to select one horse for the big race on the big day and get it right, and that is something he has not learned yet. And I'm just wondering, given your love for the sport, what your thoughts are on that. Is that an unfair thing to say about Aidan O'Brien? Or do the circumstances dictate that O'Brien will never be in that position, given how successful he is? He will never go into a grade one race with just one horse to choose from. There will always be multiple horses. Doesn't need to learn to do it, be my view, uh, because this is all about business. And flat racing in Ireland is all about primarily breeding uh, therefore, the most important thing to do is win big races like the Epsom Derby. A horse called Serpentine won the Epsom Derby last year, 25 to 1. If Serpentine, who was not a fancied horse, becomes one of the best ever colts at producing horses that go on and win future races around the world, it is more important for Aidan O'Brien to have many chances to win a derby than have one chance and to prove that he's a great trainer. And early in his career, he would have had really like leading hopes for a derby, but he could have had a pacemaker in the race. So Galileo won the derby in 2001 and Galileo has become probably the supreme cult. Uh, you're making hundreds of thousands from a cover for a young uh, stallion. Uh, that'll go on and uh, out of Galileo. Uh, so th- it's a massive business and I feel that it doesn't really matter and I think it's actually better for Aidan O'Brien to have many darts at the board uh, than have just one chance. And that's why he's won eight Epsom Derbies more than Vincent O'Brien ever won. So it's really immaterial so, about that. What would your thoughts be, um, and it's touched upon in Paul Kimmage's piece and the relationship between Jim Bulger and Aidan O'Brien and Jim Bulger himself describes it as maybe somebody else eating your dinner or taking your dinner given that he had such an influence on Aidan O'Brien's development and then in the last maybe 15, 20 years he sat back and he has watched 
the Aiden O'Brien phenomenon just go from strength to strength. It's an almost overwhelming, overpowering presence in the flat game at the moment that one wonders what Jim Bulger makes of how much progress Aiden O'Brien has made. I would say he's happy for Aiden. Um, I don't know the gentleman that well. I would say that um, when Vincent retired, there was going to be an heir to uh, the Batty Doyle operation, which is Vincent's son-in-law, John Wagner, Coolmore, that massive global business, which this is. Uh, the horse racing is almost secondary at times to it. Uh, Aidan O'Brien was young. He was hungry. He'd proven himself as a jumps trainer, and uh, therefore he was the, the person that they anointed as the successor. And he's proven that by winning races around the world, Breeders' Cup, Derby's the most important race is still the Epsom Derby. It was interesting in the article that Jim uh, said, I did feel I should have got more support from him. This is Aidan O'Brien on the issue of drugs and racing when I said that we didn't have a level playing pitch. That was an interesting comment uh, for Jim to make. I thought it was probably the most, the biggest comment in the article. Yeah, I agree. I think it was the most telling, really, comment in the whole piece. And I suppose this is us pulling out, taking our own perceptions of what that may or may not mean, I suppose, you know. But yeah, that stood out for me. And perhaps for him, he may have felt that when he made that comment last week that he would have started a ball rolling. Not going to happen. He may feel it's, it's, it's instead a tumbleweed. And he may have felt that perhaps other people may have jumped onto the ball, which, of course, they're right not to. But yeah, I think it, visibly, obviously, he was very disappointed. Well, Jim is one of the most respected uh, people in the game. So you have to take what he says very seriously, as Jer Lyons said on the show last week. But the IHRB have said they've got zero tolerance for doping. They say they have 5,000 tests a year. They say ha they have testing after every winner. Um, it, it's almost like they're the police. And the question is, are the police doing their job? They say they're doing their job. Um, but what Jim says needs to be taken very seriously. And you'd hope that um, whatever... Uh, investigations or ramping up of, of testing around doping needs to be done, will be done. Um, because unfortunately, or fortunately, unless you've got proof, unless you've got evidence, clearly um, th th there's not much that can be done right now. And it's, no, it's whether the evidence will come to case. Uh, that's We have had cases in the past. Philip Fenton was banned uh, for being in possession of steroids. Um, but it, it is. It, it was a. It was a flare, as Ruby Walsh wrote about this week, that was put into the sky by Jim, and and I think the there's definitely legs in the in the story. It'll be interesting to see in a few years' time, like you said, using that flare metaphor, and a few years' time, perhaps, and there's more investigations, and like you said, we'll call them the de facto police force. They are, they are upping their testing, and they're saying they are as robust as they can be, and they're planning to be even more robust. It'll be interesting to see, to see what will be seen, if anything, in a few years' time, and, you know, will, will, will this have been seen as a moment where people should have moved faster, or will it be seen as actually everyone was doing the best they could at the time? We don't know this yet. Um, but unfortunately, in the world of professional sport, in all different sports, not just equestrian or horse racing, all over the world, we saw it during the week with uh, Shelby Houlihan is all over in the US and the athletics and the band she got for having too much nandrolone in her system. And um, when there's money and power at stake, you always have to, it, it, you would be naive to think that uh, stuff was not going on that shouldn't be going on in all sports. Well, I love Irish racing. I think Irish racing is something we'd be very proud of. And I've been following it for 30 years as a, as a punter and as a fan and as a journalist at times. I would say it would be naive to believe there's not shenanigans going on in Irish racing just as much as you'd be naive to believe there's not shenanigans going on in cycling and athletics. Are most of the people involved of the utmost integrity? I would say yes. But it would be naive to, be, to believe that 100% of them um, are straight. Agreed.
David, I don't know if you want to add or talk about Rory McIlroy or something instead. Yeah, it's, it's, <laughs> I've, I've, I'm not educated enough in the matters of horse racing to really delve into something as potentially um, incendiary as this. But I, 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 it's been summed up by Maura Traster there, where there's money and power at stake, albeit in any sport. And there are a number of sports out there, I think, that either have in the past or are still currently doing so turning a blind eye or not wishing to really delve deep into the potential issues. Um, and uh, until that changes, there'll be a, a large number of sports that maybe are lacking in the integrity that they could do, do if you are absolutely confident in the structures that are in place, which unfortunately isn't the case in a lot of places. But um, and yeah, I know we're into the last few minutes of, of our pay-per-view today and there, the golf is something that I'm actually debating in my mind um, during our ad breaks in this hour as to whether or not I've got the wherewithal to stay up for it tonight. You will, Dave, you will. <laughs> I think the days of me managing to last the duration of a West Coast major are gone, unfortunately. Um, I, 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 re I remember Graham McDowell winning at Pebble Beach in 2010 as probably being the last time I managed to hang around long enough to watch somebody lift whatever trophy was in question, in, um, in this case, the US Open trophy. Uh, 11 years ago, I didn't manage to watch Webb Simpson win Olymp Olympic the year the year after that, or was it two years after that? Will I manage to get in there tonight? I know Rory tees off at 8.44, so he's probably not going to be finished until about 2 in the morning. Um, it's a, it's going to be a very difficult one. If he's still in the mix around about 11, 11.30, it's going to be very difficult to say no and to go to bed when you know you could be potentially watching Rory win for the first time in seven years. And yesterday, his round of golf was almost air free in comparison to his first two days where he was making very few pars his rounds were littered with birdies and bogeys so um i just did a really quick count there during our last break i make it eight major champions are within five shots of the lead it is beautifully set up absolutely beautifully set up yeah i can't wait for it myself and lo and mcguire as well we can't forget um on the verge potentially of a, a career breakthrough and a lpag tour win i thought luke fitzgerald's piece was quite funny in the um in the Sunday Times about the Lions, uh, Maura Trasa. Oh, yeah, it was a brilliant piece, actually. Um, it, it's all about him kind of talking about his experiences and, you know, you get little stories from outside uh, the rugby field as well. And you'd actually kind of forget he had such... I, 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 it was good for me to get the reminder myself that his rugby playing days, while he ended with injury and he was always plagued with injury, when he began, it came really easy to him. And um, he made his Ireland debut at 19, you know, and that's really interesting. And two two seasons later, he barely missed a minute of a Grand Slam campaign. And then all of a sudden, we know how his career ended. He was plagued. But I thought this was really interesting. He was talking about how he was so focused on his game. He wanted to play so well. Not a hair was out of place. Everything was meticulously planned. And then he arrives in Pretoria and um, they're getting their rooming lists. And uh, he's roomed with Andy Powell. And he says his heart sank. And I have to read this out word for word because I couldn't do it justice by paraphrasing. I loved Andy, he says. He was a great trainer and great fun. But he was also leading the charge on nights out and didn't look like a test option at that point. I'm thinking, I need a few good kips here and to train well. Paulie's on a different schedule. Let's see how the first night goes. I remember waking up the next morning and the first thing I see is a pizza stuck to the ceiling above me. I turn over on my side and just imagine the vision and see this orange 120 kg lump splayed on the bed opposite. The Welsh guys are wearing their Saint-Tropez fake tan at this stage. So you had this massive orange body with a white arse. Not the greatest sight. Still, <laughs> at least he hadn't woken me, which I find miraculous in itself. How deep does Luke Fitzgerald sleep? I, I want to know the answer to this. But then I go to brush my teeth and I crunch into all these Cheetos between the beds all over the carpet. That's when I decided to request a room change. And he was good about it. 
<laughs> it's interesting, John. He, uh, he also talks about that second test in Pretoria in 2009. Shock which, burger, yeah. Bloody hell. Oh, like it's, it's seen as one of the most physical tests in, in modern professional rugby. And there was a, there's a line from Peter O'Reilly who has sat down with Luke to talk about um, this period in his life in the build up to the obviously the Lions test series starting in the next couple of weeks but a referee apparently recently reviewed the sec that second test between the Lions and the Springboks who were then world champions as they are now and he said he'd have shown three red cards and 14 yellows uh, and we remember that tackle that Brian O'Driscoll put in on Danny Russo and it was it was seen as a heroic tackle at the time but it's completely outlawed now and O'Driscoll would absolutely have been sent off for that tackle if it was refereed according to modern day standards Schalkberger shown a yellow card for an eye gouge which was picked up by the touch, touch judge at the time now under the rules the TMO didn't have the leeway to intervene in foul play as he does as he or she does now but so it was still there would have been enough evidence there for the referee to make the decision himself to send off Schalkberger they probably would have lost that test, the Springboks. And we wouldn't have got to the situation where we know Ronan O'Gara, having taken a bang to the head a couple of minutes previous, stuck that up and under and chased it on his own and ended up taking out the catcher in the air, which led to that long-range penalty that meant the series was dead and dusted before the, the third test. And Fitzgerald is really good on O'Gara as well. And the manner in which he was blamed for that defeat... He, he cites the fact that nobody chased with him. He cites the fact that there was a couple of really soft tries given up by the Lions that afternoon as well, long before O'Gara's mistake. And it's a really interesting read. He still talks about how the referee bottled that decision on Berger. And he also talks about his own career. And, and he seems comfortable enough to be able to describe how disappointed he still feels without his career ended. We know it ended at the age of 28 due to injury. He managed to cram an awful lot in for a guy that spent so much time at the treatment table and won some huge games, played in some massive occasions and won big medals, a Grand Slam, a couple of Heineken Cups, went on a Lions tour. But now that he's into his 30s and still two years younger than Alan Wynne-Jones, for example, and he's been retired for so long at this stage, it must be difficult for players like himself and Owen O'Malley and other players that have had their careers cut short in their 20s, even when they can take a step back and five or six or 10 years later, look back on it, still not to feel that deep, almost resentment and bitterness and sense of disappointment that maybe he didn't get the breaks that other players did. And someone like Brian O'Driscoll, who got to go out in his mid-30s on a high yeah. with Ireland having won a Six Nations medal. But I mean, those fairy tale endings are so rare and it's very difficult to end your career in the way that you'd like. About a minute left. Anything else just to point people to off air, Maura Trassa? Um, if you are into the lines and if you love pointless stats and numbers, uh, do go to the Mail on Sunday. They have a great article by Nick Simon talking about uh, facts and figures of keeping a Lions tour on tour. And the headline is, just to whet your appetite, literally, 8,000 eggs, 2,000 chicken fillets, 7,000 steaks and Love Island. The secrets to keeping 37 lines fit, fit to take on the box. Well, Rory McIlroy's had the same chicken sandwich six days in a row. <laughs> uh, Dave, briefly from yourself. Yeah, interesting if you have the time to read Stuart Barnes on the Sunday Times today because he is talking about the United Rugby Championship and the details of which were confirmed during the week and the chatter around potential inclusion of South African or of South Africa in the Six Nations and maybe somewhere down the line and this may be just a prelude to that and how he feels that is going to affect um, the Celtic League as it stands, a Pro 14 rugby as it stands and a future Six Nations as well. Stuart Barnes okay. doesn't think that we're going down the right road. Dave McIntyre, Maura Trassini, Kelly, an absolute pleasure. Thank you. Ramagi. Thank you. Sunday paper review, brilliant stuff from Dave and Maura Trassa. Off the ball, Sash Sunday.
rather, on News Talk, getting the days mixed up here. Uh, we're back with Paddy Andrews and Andy Moran for the football pod after the news at three. The OTB Podcast Network with Get Set Go. Quick start car insurance that's ready when you are. Sort your policy anytime online at getsetgo.ie.